trends and, and trends in the prospects of using genetic biocontrol approaches, uh, some of which I think are really quite interesting because in some regards, Australia is quite a unique place and I'm trying to, uh, try to uh, I like what I think is relevant information out with this stuff, Jason. Oh, it's good. Uh, it works. Yeah, let me just see if I, I might have to click on slides themselves. Does your, does your thing work now? Yes, it works. Thank Great. you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so a quick outline of what I, what I want to talk about. First, I want to sort of paint a bit of a broader picture about the, the particular problems that we have with established pests in Australia. And I'm focusing on animal pests only. We have a massive weeds issue as well. I'm not going there today. Why we love self-disseminating biocontrols for all kinds, for both animals and weeds. Um, then um, I might have to go through this real quick because most of you will be familiar with it. Uh, a brief introduction on how genetic biocontrol works. Probably. Yes, I can probably be very quick about this. And then um, I've, I've picked two uh, bits that I would like to talk about. One is um, Australian perspective and two pieces of work that we did on, on stakeholder engagement and public attitudes. Um, and uh, then uh, a little bit of a, a perspective of what's currently happening in terms of technical developments in Australia and what are our future plans that um, hopefully will be able to fund it. Some, sometime soon. So much of this is actually published work and much of it's not my own work. Um, I've been involved in some of it, but I've tried to acknowledge um, the people I did it by citing their papers along the way. So um, my first slide is about established pests in Australia, and there's been um, a recent paper uh, from Corey Bradshaw estimates that since the 1960s we've spent incurred losses uh, of almost 300 billion US dollars just from invasive species, um, which is horrendous. And it's just a never-ending frustrated task managing established pests and weeds. They're, they replace, you know, they replenish themselves all the time. It's, it's like you know, you're trying to em keep emptying that bucket that's got a hole in it, not only have like a tablespoon, and it's just you. Land managers are forever hemorrhaging money, and it's such a frustrating task to kill all these animals, and then it's not followed up or coordinated properly. So two weeks later, you just restart it and kill them all for nothing, and keep incurring these losses and this damage, and it's just so frustrating. And and one reason why we love biological controls in Australia is because they are self-disseminating, and why that's so important in particular for us is. Um, I've showed this slide. So Australia is a, is a pretty big place. So that it's actually pretty much exactly the same size of the continuous United States, which I'm visiting for the first time. Um, yeah. Uh, but we have um, less than a tenth of the population density. So, and, you know, our pest animals are, uh, depending on the species, but they are pretty much everywhere. So it's easy to see that you know, manual efforts alone we just, it's just not enough people or infrastructure to actually tackle that. Um, so we love self-disseminating biocontrols and um, one quite famous case and also quite contentious case because no one else in the world really does it other, apart from New Zealand is, uh, for example, our um, rabbit biocontrol where Australia has used viruses 
starting in the 1950s with and then there was Rebicalisi virus, well, actually several strains and, and versions of Rebicalisi viruses um, that were used to uh, control rabbits at a landscape scale. And this is the distribution of rabbits. And that you can see, you know, the rabbits are everywhere where the people are not. So it's really hard to manage them manually. And they're such a uh, prolifically generating species. Um, so it's been incredibly successful. Uh, and some of the, uh, the paper, which is now uh, 10 years old, estimates that over 60 years, um, the uh, uh, rabbit bar control initiatives have led to over $70 billion of economic benefits. So that number is now 10 years old, so look probably more than that. So what's, what really is good in the Australian context in particular is these viruses are self-disseminating. Any biocontrol, as we define it, proper biological control is actually self-disseminating. So uh, in the case of these viruses, there are also insects transmitted, which helps. Um, and once established, they cause repeated outbreaks. So they basically keep doing the job without somebody having to go and manually do something about it. Having said that, though, um, this graph on genetic rabbit abundance shows it's, it's not a silver bullet because viruses never eradicate their hosts. That's just not how viruses work. In fact, they, they co-evolve together and you know, at, at some point resistance will start to develop so it loses its effectiveness. Um, so what that means is you know, repeated adjustments need to be made to maintain the gains because what's really important is not to kill a lot of rabbits, what's really important is to keep the area above the ground as big as possible for as long as possible because that's where landscapes then can recover. So we love our control. Uh, and this is another success of the rabbit bar control program in addition to the economic benefits that have been massive um, uh, environmental benefits. And this is a beautiful case study now also a few years old because the suppression of the rabbits um, by the virus led to a suppression of the feral fox and cat populations as well. And that actually led to three small mammalian species to come back from the brink of extinction and they could actually be removed from the IUC threatens. Um, and uh, that is a big deal because in Australia, since European settlement, we've lost uh, over 30 mammalian species. Um, and the main driver of that, uh, ahead of uh, climate change and habitat loss, is actually our introduced um, uh, middle predators, like cats and foxes. So, um, so, understandably, in Australia, as people have been involved in pest management, their bar control got really excited when this milestone paper uh, was published by, by Kevin and colleagues in 2014 about gene drives or genetic bar control, as we like to refer to it now, because it's not really all the gene drive, and there's so many different forms. So the idea of so the gene drive, I mean, that idea to use selfish genetic elements to control populations, sorry, it's CRISPR, not CRISPR, um, has been around for, for a long time through Austin Burt's work, but this paper for the first time combined it with the precision engineering component and suddenly generated a selfish gene from scratch by combining the epitene plus the intrinsic cellular repair mechanisms. So Australia was really um, very excited about this. Oh, yeah, and, you know, because of especially the, the sustainable um, pest management angle. So I'll skip through this quickly because you probably all know this anyway. 
yeah, the, the basic um, components of the initial proposed gene drive was you know, the, the machinery of that CRISPR-Cas9, uh, the guide RNA of it several, because you want know, to hedge your bets a little bit, your, your, your payload, something that, say, turns everything into your offspring into males phenotypically, and your Cas enzyme. So after fertilization, where you know, the male and the female or the parental gametes uh, get together with zygote, Cas is expressed, guide RNA is expressed, they kind of join and very specifically cut. Cell hates that, double stranded DNA breaks, all hell breaks loose, repair mechanisms are um, uh, uh, triggered, and because you know they need to know what to repair, so they use the other strand as a template, leading in the ideal case to a duplication or homing, and then in the ideal theoretical case, 100% of the offspring uh, inherit the desired trait. So obviously, if you imagine in a rabbit, which is my favorite species, you, you push a payload into a population that turns everyone into male. This male will only have male offspring, mates again will only have male offspring, and so on. And over time, you'll have an all male population, and then they'll all get old and lonely, and then they die. And um, that, I mean, while this also has issues associated with it, it seems so much better than killing stuff repeatedly. Poisons using viruses and doing it over and over again. So, big excitement. It would be so nice if this worked. Everyone in the business mentioned established pests. It's absolutely sick. So, there was obviously a lot of excitement. You know, it's more humane, viruses and toxins, species specific. It's the very definition. I just want to take it back down. I'll clean something. I'll take it down here. Was, was that a question? Or? No, I think just, oh, just okay. ask. Uh, if you're on Zoom, please mute if you're not on his drive. <laughs> yeah, so it's species specific. So the very definition of a species is it has to be able to sexually reproduce in mammals. Um, and it would be self disseminating, uh, not contagious, which is good. So you know, if, you're, if you're a pet cat, you know, don't just desex it and don't let it go partying and come home pregnant. So it's really, yeah, so it doesn't require a repeated release of a large number of animals in theory. Um, so, yeah, people started to hope and uh, are using the E word again, which is a dirty word, it's extinction, so, or eradication, actually. Um, can we actually think of eradicating these pests? Is it possible? But there was also um, another side of things, obviously, because, you know, the originally proposed form was kind of uncontrollable. Uh, and it's easy to imagine if it just goes in the wrong space, you know, it's irresponsible, it's genetically modified, you know, which has its own bad issues attached to it, it won't work anyway, regulatory nightmare, there'll be international implications because what's a pest in Australia, there's a native species somewhere else, obviously, and same true for, for in this, you know, invasive species everywhere in the world, they're all coming from somewhere where they play a role. Uh, and it's, you know, it's ecological risk, uh, trade might be. Uh, implicated and you uh, explain more for that. So, uh, in the early days of um, gene drives, there was there was a, a, and many of you were part of this and at the forefront of it. Um, there, and, and a lot of publications were out there. And there were more publications, I think, about gene drives and the ethics of it than there were actually functioning gene drives. And there was none in mammals for a very long time. Um, so it was. 
so there was a big, a big, big you know, debate going on, and yeah, yeah. Um, but and, and again, most of you are aware of this that a moratorium was called for, but was eventually averted um, because, uh, in my view, common sense prevailed, and you know, transparency beats a moratorium any time. And the Academy of Sciences released this report. Um, uh, and um, some guiding principles surrounding research in this area were developed. And uh, from the Australian perspective, the Australian Academy of Science um, basically produced a document in line with this and signing on to um, these, these principles. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to look at the chat to see if there's a problem. With, oh, oh it was just an analogy. Okay. I just want to make sure that there wasn't a problem with the audio or the video. Oh, we're good. Yep. And at around the same time, oh, I'm messed up again. Oh, okay, maybe three. Does that work? Yeah. Okay. At the same time, uh, the the Chibert partnership was formed. Many of you in the room are, you know, founding members and partners of it. Um, and this, the, the the guiding principles on the right are basically from the charter and. They're basically a, a number of principles that very much aligns with the overall recommendations from the National Academy of um, Sciences. Um, so yeah, proceed cautiously, engage early and often with, you know, not just make, a, make something in the lab and then, you know, tell the world what I made if you want it, but bring everyone along the way, um, no surprises, have those conversations, um, uncompromising commitment, uh, to biosafety and existing regulations, um, you know, practice development and operate only countries where there is a robust regulatory framework and be transparent. Um, yeah, oh, where does that come from? Sorry. Um, so yes, in, in, but sorry, the G-Bird consortium obviously has a focus on rodents on islands. Um, yes, rodents are both Rodents are fantastic models done with because they're both a modern species, but also a major target test, especially when it comes to biodiversity uh, threats on islands. Um, in Australia, we also have we're also interested in managing rodents on islands, but we're obviously also interested in managing a whole bucket of other pests. And um, which brings me to the next part um, to talk about the two stakeholder uh, the uh, First of the stakeholder engagement um, piece of work that we did. Um, so we thought, this is really cool. This has so much potential for some of these really untractable uh, problems in Australia. So, but how can we progress this? Um, so we obviously, I mean, we need to find out, we need to find something that's in the sweet spot here of this Venn diagram. It has to be desirable, it has to be doable, and it has to be acceptable, but also there's a fourth circle missing and somebody has to pay pay for it which we hope would you know materialize if, if we find something that sits within that um within that overlap so what we um uh, managed to get funded was an externally funded uh, project by the center for embedded species solutions uh, starting in 2018 was uh, uh, about australian specific stakeholder interactions in this context so um, and there was a, a bunch of CSRO scientists from various disciplines uh, leading this um, 
including some social scientists and ecologists and genetic engineers um, and uh, the Western, Western Australian uh, State Department of Biodiversity Conservation and Attractions also helped us lead this. So, um, so we basically wanted to, to map out with our key stakeholders um, you know, what's the path forward to, to, or to actually make this happen aligned with these principles and guidelines. So we wanted to elicit the, the push and pull factors, um, so what, what drives you and what, what, what put you off, um, and uh, also what's, what's the investment appetite, because nothing actually happens without salaries being paid. People who then do the work, which is a perpetual problem. Um, and then develop a framework to aid decisions if, when, and how to invest. Uh, at that time, um, proof of concept of this approach, this control approach in mammals, was elusive, so it hadn't worked yet. So it was kind of a hypothetical exercise. Um, so this is, I'm not going to go into detail, this is just to show you the very complex and yet still incomplete stakeholder map. Um, this is just to show you that actually a lot of thought went into who do we consult, room for this. So our little, you know, unicorn rainbow mouse in the middle. Um, anyway, from this map, we um, we picked uh, participants and we organised this into two stakeholder workshops. So the first um, started with an offline survey tool, um, and um, yeah. So the input was, you know, very published literature, uh, the expert knowledge from the team. Um, so yeah, as I said, we had an interdisciplinary team together, and the first workshop. Uh, had a slightly different composition, so it was still in close, it was before COVID, just before COVID. Um, 36 participants, um, we wanted to keep it sort of medium size. Once they get too big, they get too unwieldy. Um, so we had uh, uh, representatives from the research community, state, federal agencies, NGOs, including RSPCA, which is our um, uh, Society for, uh, for the Protection of companion Animals. I don't even know. Um, with our um, SPCA equivalent, um, so sharing perspectives and everyone highlight their risk and on, on a species specific basis. So the second workshop, once we had sort of um, summarised that, was smaller and it was virtual because it was in the middle of COVID. And this time we, we targeted mostly potential investors and industry representatives and government decision makers, which in the Australian model includes all the states as well. Um, and really focused on the um, what actually enables you to what enable you to invest in this and drive it forward. So and this it's, it's a big write-up and report and I'll have a QR code so you can link to that later on. It's just want to highlight one of the key outputs of the first workshop was um, this prioritization matrix. So people looked at their um, uh, most pressing species, depending on the role that they had, and ranked it um, according to you know, four different factors: so ecological imperative, so you know, which means you know how much damage do they do, and uh, are there any other tools available? In the case of feral cats, for example, there isn't. What would be the anticipated social acceptance be? Technological development and the strength of the business case. So, who do you think would have an interest in actually funding this work? And technological development very much focused on is this a species you can work with more easily than with others? Obviously, mouse is better than a pig. Um, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's a laboratory. But uh, very, another key take on message was everyone was like, look, before we discuss it any further, we need a proof of concept because we might be having this dog risk and it may not actually work in mammals. Um, so moving on to workshop two with a more stronger focus on the uh, factors that would influence the decision making. So, um, and some of the main uh, things that fell out, uh, the, the challenges, I guess, post that everyone faces and makes this investment decision in, in the management environment is, you know, there's diverse drivers, there's always competing priorities, and this falls under bar security. So at the moment, a lot of nasty diseases are basically on Australia's doorstep, and it's chewing up a lot of resources, all comes out of the same bucket. Uh, multiple jurisdictions, it's never-ending source of headaches in Australia, a uh, range of decision-making processes. Um, so the, the, the essential conditions that would need to be met fell out was um, you know, safety. People were mostly in favour, but they said you know, safety needs to be demonstrated and the efficacy needs to be demonstrated. It has to be stakeholder public engagement, managing reputational risk. Trade needs to be considered. We're, we're a massive export nation when it comes to agricultural produce, and there have to be key drivers for development um, and other enabling factors with alignment with you know priorities, a coherent governance system, governance system, and um, you know, meeting those other goals as well. Um, so some of the key recommendations that came out of this were hardly surprising, but it was good to have it confirmed and everyone was on board with it. Um, so, yeah, it has to be early, comprehensive stakeholder research and engagement strategy. So multiple stakeholders would need to be consulted and basically, yeah, so, so all these things will need to be addressed in parallel in addition to the technical development. Um, there has to have to be a really um, clear governance structure with oversight and national coordination. That was another one that fell out of it. Uh, trade risk needs to be considered, but the the biggest one, I probably should have put it up the top, was that there would have to be a convincing pipeline proposed as part of the investment strategy, what would be a clear path to implementation. So a pipeline from animal laboratory studies to field implementations and stage proofs of concept under diminishing levels of containment, and if all the data stacks up, then move to field releases. So very much in line to what's been just the path that's been pursued for, for other systems as well, like mosquitoes. And um, so no surprises there, but um, good to have it all confirmed. So what's meant by this pipeline, uh, not just for rodents, but also when it comes to the um, uh, transfer to, to other species. So proof of concept was the first, and again, when we did this, we didn't have a proof of concept. Um, then once the proof of concept is being pursued, uh, acquisition of essential background data and closing knowledge gaps for all the other target species can already be done. And then transfer of the technology, model organism to the target species, and the implementation of biological target species. And those essential background data are things like population structure dynamics, the genetic variability um, obviously needs to be known because it's key for this to work. Gene flow, migration, social structure, all these things that you need to know about your target population. That's also really useful in other contexts. And investors, potential investors, really like this because it's sort of a no regrets scenario. 
they invest in something, even if a gene drive doesn't work, um, they still will be able to derive really useful information in other management context from having this kind of uh, knowledge available. Um, yeah, just a work cloud because work clouds are awesome. Um, so what came out of this online workshop and we were sort of interactive, it was early in COVID, but we found that it's external facilitator already knew how to effectively facilitate an online workshop. So there was an overall very positive sentiment in the room. So people were excited about the um, uh, possibilities. Then, you know, cautious optimism, transformative was the, the, the main thing that fell out. Um, but also people like the added welfare, like the, the, the welfare benefits that this could potentially bring. It's, it's killing animals is always going to be contentious, yet we really can't not do it because the consequences of not doing it are often worse. So, yeah, so this is, um, this work has been written up, so I really just highlighted a couple of um, uh, key outcomes from it. So there's a short version, which is this report, which you can um, find under this QR code here uh, from the you know, social scientists among you, the, 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 the actual methods behind um, this paper was written up, uh, behind these workshops and written up in a, in a uh, journal publication that by our uh, social scientists of the team. Uh, and yeah, if you're interested, just the details in that. Um, which brings me now to the second part of the Australian specific sort of stakeholder or, or um, Stakeholder engagement. This one is a, it's more to do with surveys around public perceptions. Um, and this work was, was not necessarily, it's, it's relevant, very relevant for GBIRT, but um, not GBIRT associated, but my organization, CSR, had a, a, a synthetic biology, we call it Future Science Platform. And as part of that, Aditi Makart, she's a social scientist, um, did a public survey of a couple of thousand people. Um, and they they used feral cats as an example because they're a very contentious subject in Australia. Um, so and they used this uh, as an opportunity to, to to find out about perceptions of pest animals as a major problem and feral cats in particular. They also used the opportunity to provide some basic education on genetic control. There's actually a really cute video, a cartoon video that they made that explains it um, as background for people to be able to answer the survey better uh, and then gauging attitudes towards this technology. So again, this is a report worth reading and I have another QR code at the end of this. Uh, just a few highlights from it. So um, do Australians think pest species are a problem? And um, very much so. I mean, the overwhelming majority is quite astutely aware that these things in Australia are a massive problem. Um, I'm not sure it's unique. It certainly seems very high compared to, to other places, um, except New Zealand. Feral cats in particular um, are a very contentious subject and a very high profile invasive pest. I mentioned earlier we have this 30 mammalian species extinctions and cats have played a major role in this. So we have, I'm not sure how many feral cats estimates are probably awfully wrong, but there, is, there are publications that estimate that they kill an average 3.2 million mammals, 1.2 million birds, 
with 9 million reptiles and 250,000 frogs per day, and most of those are native species. And um, it's an estimate of just under 2 billion native animals a year. Uh, cats also inhabit over 90% of the continent, and they are really, really difficult to control because our outback feral cats, they are not your scrawny little half-starved cat that roams around the, the ranch tips. They are feeding animals, they're targeting eating slices of wolves. They are absolutely feral and they do quite often do not take baits. Um, so they're really hard to manage. Um, yeah, so this is a self-assessment. They asked them, how much do you think you know about synthetic biology? A, and would you support its use? And I find this quite interesting. I'm not a social scientist, I'm a molecular biologist, but you know, the self-reported assessment was I actually have maybe a little bit of knowledge, but a lot of them basically said I have no knowledge. So the majority was not particularly well informed, but then would you be would you support its use? Uh, there was actually, um, the majority was actually in support, and I'm not quite sure that might have been after them watching these educational videos, and I'm not sure if this means that, you know, uh, they're not very well informed, but they do trust science and the message that scientists give them. I don't know if that's what that means, but um, they're quite open to these things, I thought. Um, but you always have, you know, extremes at, at the end. Um, and they looked at it attitudinal pairs, and again, on, on average, um, for the most part, you know, people found it more beneficial than harmful, more ethical than not, more wise than foolish. Obviously, it's not very natural, but overall, again, looking at this pair approach, um, it's, it, it, it was, you know, it, it got an overall positive assessment, and so um, a lot of people are clearly aware that new approaches are necessary because, especially for feral cats, don't have the tools to, to, to manage these things. Um, and I love this one, um, and that will be the last one from this report. It's uh, again level of support for the local implementation of a gene drive if it were available for feral cats and compared to conventional control methods. And I think the key here is local. Like if it happens in your backyard, would you still support it? So, um, and I, I like this because, so there is, you know, there's big control, big support, feral cat control, um, uh, both for conventional and local uh, and uh, genetic technologies. And to me, what this looks like, it's, just, it's uh, basically a normal distribution, slightly skewed to the right, so overall, more of a, overall more supportive than not. And at the extreme end, they, these are the feral cat cases. And we have a lot of them in Australia. They're a very vocal group of environmentalists. And the feral cat haters, they, they hate feral cats. They say we absolutely must control them. And they, in this group, you know, um, they also say we need you to because the current rules are not So in, very interesting, I think, and perhaps a little bit unique to Australia is how um, yes, again, QR code. Um, I can leave that material. It's, it's well worth reading. It's beautiful made this report. Um, so well done, ITTFT. Um, right, we don't have time. Okay. Um, so, yes, um, personally, 
I wish they would have chosen a different species. Um, I understand the choice of uh, feral cats because they are such a big problem and they are so contentious. Um, but it's also a long way away from publication of feral cats if it, if it would ever work. Right? So it's definitely not the first cat of the rank, as we say, when it comes to developing genetic biocontrol tools. So this is another really nice paper out of uh, from an Australian group out of the University of Adelaide, and this is the, the, the modelling crew around Phil Kessie and Tom Prowse. So Aisha Yu um, published this paper where she modelled um, a, a Y-based gene drive in a variety of species, and her paper shows that as soon as you start plugging in those um, life history traits of the slightly longer-lived larger species, um, in her modelling, the, the time to eradication and both the likelihood of eradication drastically changes once you get to things like feral cats and foxes. Um, and this is modeling, obviously, but I talked to her and I said, you know, obviously um, the outcome will change slightly depending what type of drive you use, what thresholds you use. Um, and it's just a magnification. So I didn't know how big the screen would be. Um, but yeah, the, the relative difference between the species based on the, the life history traits makes this um, uh, pretty unlikely, I would say, according to this model. So, anyway, but yeah, I would hope that investment decisions will be based on uh, this, this sort of thing will be taken into consideration. Um, so now, for the last couple of minutes, I want to um, talk a little bit about um, recent technical developments, again with a focus on uh, Australia, but also international collaborations in particular when it comes to the future plans, um, what we're trying to now take forward based on the recent um, developments. So this is just a little bit of a snapshot. Sorry, this is a piece of slide, I'm sorry. Um, just to give a little bit of an overview in terms of the technical developments, the actual hands-on work in the various animals that I am aware of that's currently going on in Australia, so this may not be a complete list. Um, so grey is things that are about to start where there haven't been um, uh, publications out yet um, where I know that's the attention to do so, certainly where it says CSRO, I'm confident that we're do, doing this. So the, there are the three moving parts in my view of a gene drive that various groups are working on. And one is um, you know, improving gene editing methods, which is important. Um, it's, it's easy for, never easy, but easier for things that deposit their eggs externally. Um, so uh, methods are being approved for Fish, toads, rabbits, and actually, as a new player in Australia, University of Melbourne, who's landed a, a chunk of money to um, uh, uh, establish better gene editing methods for non target species by using the nuclear transfer, um, which is a group around uh, Stephen Frankenberg. Uh, and then there is the target gene validation. You obviously have to show that what you're targeting really has the desired effect and fertile and a lot of fitness costs. So there's a couple of um, uh, research um, entities investigating that in a variety of species. Uh, but the really big hairy one, which 
is the hardest one, I think, is the drive mechanism. And this um, University of Adelaide has, is working on that device, and there's work going on a couple of fish species, and we would like to start looking at that in its yet so yeah, but if you get all these right, that doesn't give you a gene drive because that's the thing that's really um, So mice, yes, what, what's happened in mice? Mice are obviously, yeah, they came up top in the, and rightly so as the um, recommended first species to drive this forward with because they took fossil boxes, so they're model species and a significant pest, not just on islands, but also in agriculture. Australia's just come off the back of horrendous mouse plague uh, the last two years. This is obviously not last year's mouse plague, but it looked quite similar. Um, there are plenty of mice everywhere. It's, it's horrible. Um, uh, yes, unfortunately, which many of you also be aware of, uh, up until very recently, uh, you know, there wasn't a rodent gene drive. There wasn't, in fact, any mammalian gene drive proof of concept. So there were a couple of papers showing the opposite, that homing is possible in mice, but it was really efficient. Um, there's a couple of papers we're going into that. But um, yeah, so what was happening you know, when the crisp cuts, and this is from Kevin's paper, using mosquitoes as an example, so you don't get the repair, but instead you get the models and joining. And that's no gene drive, and also after this, you know, you're six times also resistant, so it's kind of a good outcome for what you want. Um, yeah. So, but then there was this um, very exciting paper, um, The Breakthrough in Mice, which actually shows for the first time proof of concept of the, what looks like an effective gene drive in mice. And that's come out of, um, you know, if you look at the authors, many of which are in the room, uh, it was, it was a, a culmination of work previously done by, by Chiba partners. Paul pulled it together by using the T complex, combining this natural T drive, and I'll talk about it in the next slides, the female target, and he actually managed to get 95% of the offspring female marker. And apparently, the modeling suggests that 95% is better than 100 to help spread it to the population. Um, so apologies again, some of, to some of you, you might be completely all over this, to some of you this might be probably complicated. So how does the natural T drive work, the T upper type? Um, it does my head in this. It's something that <laughs> works during meiosis too in spermatogenesis. And this, I'm just, I'm not going through this. I just want to show this to say it's, it's horrendously complicated. It does not get it. Um, this is one of the various team types um, from, from this paper that I stole here to illustrate it. But I have a, a simple version, um, which is this one. So basically, um, how it works, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a number of genes um, of of distorters where the transcripts are shared during spermatogenesis, where the um, developing sperms are uh, connected by a plasma bridge, so they're sharing transcripts. Um, but they don't share all of them. So there's a range of distorters. Those distorters uh, interfere with um, sperm motility, and at that point, you know, every, everyone would still be impaired, but uh, 
that the TLE also provides a non-shared responder which kind of restores function, but only in the development sperm that carries the T. So that kind of rescues the sperm motility. So these guys, they're actually successful, whereas these, um, because the distorters, they, they mess with very com complex enzyme cascade um, responsible for motility. So they kind of swim in circles and they're not very successful. So, but this, this is how, how it basically works. And that has evolved naturally. Um, and what Paul did is he tagged thine RNA onto that T, targeting prolactin. Uh, prolactin, if destroyed, will result in female infertility in mice, but with little other costs. Uh, and the split drive design that he used for safety reasons, so he added the Cas9 to a different chromosome in a different mouse initially, so bred those together, so he had it all in one mouse, but with different chromosomes, which is important because you know, the, the, the drive, it wouldn't work as drive, and then if they um, make wild types, the prolactin was cut in the male germline and then transmitted to 95% of the offspring of those heterozygous males. So very elegant. Really, and really culminating, pulling together a lot of a lot of links, and it works, and it's really exciting. So that was the proof of concept that everyone's been waiting for in mice for for many many years, and now we think that the now the proof of concept is there. We can start renewing the either you know the next steps of the development, but also the next round of stakeholder interactions. So for example, regulators, the regulators will not regulate before they know what they're regulating. So now if, if, if we now know what a possible mouse could look like with possible parts, um, we can start these conversations again. Uh, and again, for the way forward, as we would like it to, to see progressing in Australia, again, we're pulling together a lot of the um, the, the, the great work that came out of the Chico Consortium. This, this, for example, is, is a paper um, from Kevin, who used to be at USDA, but is now actually with our organisation Australia. So he published a paper looking at the population genomics of a couple of different islands compared to, you know, we looked at the mouse uh, genomics on those islands compared to the mouse genomics on the source, presumed source populations. And what he found, it's really quite unbelievable. So he found on an Australian island, which is called Devonite Island, he actually found a locally fixed allele um, that has, a, yeah, that would be targetable for a female sterility gene drive. And that is, to me, that's so incredible. Um, so there is this Devonite mouse population that has mutations in the zygote RS1 gene, which if destroyed would lead to, to female serenity. And there's actually more than one. So the gut RNAs could be multiplex. Um, I don't know what the likelihood of that is. It just seems like winning the lottery. Don't know. And there is also another paper um, that focuses on the modeling aspect of this private allele approach. Um, also a, a result of the GBOT collaboration, which shows that Actually, as soon as your fre the frequency of this allele drops only a little bit, the, the drive will become ineffective fairly quickly. 
So we think that this is a fantastic opportunity to develop something towards a proof of concept to show the world that this could actually work on an island in a very safe and specific manner. Um, so what we're, whoops, what we're planning to do or what we would love to do and what we're currently starting to pull ideas together and, and approach people to fund this work um, is... Anybody know that could this be up? They're good. Just, okay, admit all. Thank you. It's <laughs> uh, to develop and to, to develop uh, and conduct, sorry, words missing again, uh, contain pen trials of gene drive mice with an Australian island specific gene drive, um, <coughs> which is just too good an opportunity to not tackle. I think. So what we are planning to do, sorry, this is a busy slide, and this is all also, this is discussions under development. This is what we, we think is, is a strong proposal. Um, so first of all, now that we know what this potential thing could look like, um, we can actually start immediately to clarify the regulatory policy pathways. And we actually have money. I have a little bit of money to do this in the next half. The first half of 2023. So we bring all the decision makers together, our gene technology regulator, our um, APM, APMA, it's the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicine Association, I don't know exactly what the word is, and the, the regulators. So the, the, the people who, there is a policy pathway, say, for example, we go through with our viral biocontrol agents for us. And I'm presuming that a very similar process will work. So what we want to do technically is first of all do this all in one mouse, no split gene drive in this case, and we're already, already talking to the regulators who, who are actually looking at this differently now that the actual drive will be location specific. So that has implications on the regulations of the actual R&D as well. Um, because, I mean, that, that drive would drive elsewhere, but the effect, the sterilising effect would not be there, and the drive is present in Australian mice anyway to some degree. But even this particular one, I think, has been as well as mouse. Um, include then a, a guide RNA or RNAs, actually, make use of the multiplexing potential of this Thevenite Island-specific female fertility allele, and then do See if it works, or the parts are working first in laboratory trials and then moving to pen trials. And we have, and it's on this slide, we actually have facilities. If the regulator is, can be convinced that these are mouse proof and they are mouse proof, uh, we've just shown that with non genome trials, they might prove these for the purpose of these trials. If they're happy, they haven't looked at them yet, but we, these facilities exist. Um, at the same time, you want to do more island genomics because there might be more suitable islands with equally suitable allele. I don't know what the likelihood of that is, but also the trial site genomics. So obviously, for this to be safe, you have to be convinced that, say, the mice in and around, the wild mice living in and around this do not have, this will be locally fixed, likelihood of that's very low, but we obviously need to confirm that. Um, uh, go through... Again, the, the, you know, with this new criterion of having a, a location-specific drive, um, again, go through an island selection process. If you know, based on 
what else we find on if we sequence more mice and more islands. Um, we also want to do, as the phase one of this proposal, uh, review the, the Indigenous stakeholder considerations and implications of field testing, especially on a localised sort of um, basis, especially where those specific islands are concerned because they have very specific issues based on depending on where they are based. And uh, we want to do more social perception work with the DTM and the team, uh, looking at public um, attitudes towards genetic biocontrol for mice, both in the environmental context, but also potentially in an agricultural context. Not that we are proposing to let this go on the mainland, but just to, to start exploring the, the unique issues that could be around um, uh, potential application in this context. And trade's the first one that comes to mind. And, but it's, it's worth having the conversation and, and see what the outcome is. And then, yes, if phase two, um, depending on, you know, does this work, uh, find the mouse design and finalised if there was another coming um, identified and then and trials and specific risk assessments and release plan and so forth. So I'm realising I'm going over time a little bit. So I keep this really short. Um, we also want to make a start on rabbits because they are one of, one of the key um, problem species in Australia that we have that not only do they have Lockdown effects, competition, and land degradations, they also um, sustain big populations of these predators that are responsible for all these mammalian insects. So, in my view, if you want to get to the feral cats, you need to get to the rabbits first. You have a much better chance um, rather than trying to develop a machine drive that might or may not work in 300 years' time in cats if the modeling is right. So, um, we've done a bit of preliminary work. Uh, and we're about to, to, to start writing this up. So we've um, been able to, we have a massive tissue bank, so we've been able to sample over 300 individuals from a pretty good spread of wild rodent populations across Australia. Uh, we've got access from Australian collaborators. Um, and we're starting to assess the genetic homogeneity, and the red ones here are Australian bunnies, so it's already apparent from this work that there's quite a, there's a few populations that um, are not very homogeneous, they're actually quite different, but thankfully these guys are quite localised, so the majority of Australian rabbits um, is reasonably closely related, going back to one major introduction uh, in, the, in the 1850s. Um, and under you know, analysis to look for locally fixed alleles is currently underway, and we want to, based on the genetic population structure, you can model the spread of the theoretical biocontrol agent. That's just based on the genetics, it's ignoring all other uh, you know, behavioural spatial aspects. Um, so that's underway. What we also want to do is to actually look at the, the drives. So if homing doesn't work in mice, it in rabbits either. Um, so we, we just want to start at the very beginning. This is a long way from energy drives, but it's just about gathering information. Um, are there actually selfish genes in rabbits? We're going to have a look at doing single-cell transcriptomics on developing rabbit sperm, and if there are, and there are, seem to be quite common in quite a few species, um, what does that mean? Is there, is there, are, there, are there already synthetic T mechanisms, and can we hang stuff off that uh, and explore that? Um, and in this context, I just thought shamedly I'm going to 
it's up here, just in case someone's interested, we're hiring. Um, we've got a little bit of funding for this work in rabbits, so we're hiring a genome engineer position and a veterinary scientist to help build this up uh, at CSRO in Australia and Canberra. Um, and they'll be going live in a couple of weeks, or they'll be advertised over January. So if you know anyone who might like to start tinkering with rabbit genetics and spend a few years in Australia, please post them. Uh, pass all my contact details. And that's it. And I apologize, I've got a little bit of time. Because there was hundreds of people involved, I've just put the organizations up uh, that were involved in the work um, that are presented here today. A big thank you to all of those. Yes, and many of you are in the room here today. But one one person that I would like to highlight, this handsome gentleman, who's been the heart and soul of G-Bird and coordinate efforts for the last seven years. So thank you, Roy. It wouldn't have worked without you. So that's it. Thank you all very much. You can advance it to the next slide. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good shot, though. Just leave the shot on for Questions? Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, one was just curious. It looked like the rabbits are starting to rebound a bit from the police virus. Yes. So, given the time frame to get a new drive system, is there a yes. way to deal with the rabbits in the next 10 years? It, it's a problem. So, actually, um, there is a slightly updated version from this rebounding slide. So, there has been an introduction of another Khaleesi virus which is a slightly different strain. And that, again, put them down by 60%, just close to big body of work describing that. Um, but that's not going to solve it forever. So there is actually a big, we have a, we call it a rabbit market for pipeline. Um, and it contains everything that we can possibly do from making the viruses that we have, you know, using them in a better way, trying to accelerate natural selection towards new variants. There's become a reverse vaccine point. Um, and we're looking for new pathogens. We're not in a position to make viruses the way we want them, which if you think about it, is a good thing. Uh, it's not possible. Um, but we, we do mention genetic biocontrol as part of the slowing care pipeline. So, and we recommend like a multi-pronged approach to keep looking for rabbit pathogens. And I've got a couple of projects doing that, trying to um, you know, select for new um, viruses, but also start uh, doing the long-term stuff. So, yes, it's going to be an ongoing issue. I don't think they will ever come back to the original levels because of the multiple pathogen pressures. It's a little, again, it's the reverse of, say, an antibiotic combination therapy. So if you have five viruses in the system, they're all slightly different. The likelihood of resistance development to all of them is, is lowered, but they'll still they'll still start to get away from it. And even at low levels in, in sensitive environments, they can do an awful lot of damage. It's a problem. My second question is, you know, the I mean, whether yeah, the most progress has been made in gene drivers and insects. Yes. Right, sure. Um, but they're noticeably absent from the list. You know, I, I can think of insects in Australia that gene drive you know, would be a good solution for, like yes. sheep blowfly in Tasmania, 
Medfly in Western Australia. And that that those those uh, and and that's happening. Those those considerations are happening, and there's work happening in that area. I just have not included it. Okay, so I, I, they, I have focused this on mammals. That's interesting because so, you know when I've had last time I was in Australia was for the parasitology meeting. The last time I gave a talk was 2019. I spoke with MLA who I know it's from the last yep. time. They were decidedly disinterested in genetic control of sheep blowfly. And I spoke with them and said, you know, Cyro in Canberra did this yep. for 20 years and failed. Yes, we're not interested in genetic yep. life. Look, I, I would have to. It's, it's not necessarily CSR is driving this, but I know other research agencies yeah. are driving research in this area, but I'm not well informed enough to give you an update, like a comprehensive update on that. Yeah. There, are, there is certainly thinking and activity in this area. Mm. Um, there are genetic approaches to, to do sterile insect technology and have been pursued for a while in, uh, in my organisation using genetic tools, not necessarily drives, but... Yeah. You know, using genetic tools to get better sorting mechanisms and increase it, um, and increase the only one sex output kind of thing. Um, I have not included that today simply because I had to remind it. I didn't know half the audience would work on this, so I might have reconsidered that. <laughs> yeah, but yes, obviously, it will be. It, it works in insects, and there is a Multitude of possibilities. What we all, what I also haven't included, what's really behind, but we also want to look into it, just initially from a theoretical and stakeholder engagement perspective. So we have training 10,000 people in Australia, right? So didn't even go there today. It's, uh, yeah, yeah um, so that brings me to my question. Um, I, I don't know how much you personally know about um, genetic efforts to control weeds in Australia, but is it more challenging because they're polyploid? What do you see as being the barriers there? Um, so yeah, I shouldn't have kicked it off the, the presentation <laughs> because um, part of the project that we have funded internally going forward will look precisely into the sense. So there's a bunch of a group of Australian scientists with CSIRO who will start stakeholder engagements modeled on the vertebrate exercise, but with the, with the weeds focus. But as part of that, they also, they aim to develop a database um, looking at suitability and criteria. So ploidy, plant genetics, it's horrendously complicated. Um, yeah. Ploidy and, and, you know, how they are coordinated. Um, are there, yeah, there's a whole range of criteria that they want to sort this um, weeds database into. Um, there will be many more Categories like I, we've broken down into four for the animal, animal species. So, that with weeds, there'll be a lot more um, criteria in terms of suitability. So, the database will be um, one output um, prioritization scheme and, yeah, stakeholder engagement appetite to see what, what are the issues. Um, and something that's you know, really coordinated, obviously, is we've looked up on differently than, say, um, yes, so it's it's underway. We're not we're not aware of anything actually being pursued in this space in Australia from a technical development point of view. I know there's some work done in weeds, 
that's pretty to tie this stuff, but um, it's underway, it's being considered, but it's I think it's behind development. Um, I had another very quick question if that's okay with people. Um, how hard, and this this one's actually about nipples. <laughs> yeah. uh, how difficult was it for you to build this uh, mouse proof enclosure for the field trials? Oh, this, oh, um, I think there were some photos of it. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, can't, um, I, can't remember, but I think it's like in um, we, we have this, we've had this enclosure for many, many years. So years ago, that was actually one of my first projects 20 years ago when I came, not in mice, but in foxes, we pursued a, another non-lethal control method that was called virally adapted immune contraception. So the idea was to genetically modify a virus that would then spread and sterilise animals. And these pens were built as part of that because, as always, the mice were ahead in the development because it was just easier. So we used a mouse cytomegalovirus um, and engineered that, and we engineered in it a, 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 an own protein of the oocyte. Basically, this is an autoimmune response. And it worked. It worked. The proof of concept worked. So the ovaries were all smooth. The mice popped out one litter and then they were sterile. It would have worked. It was pulled because it didn't transmit effectively between mice and the sterilizing effect didn't transmit effectively. So if you have to pick up every single mouse and check something, sterilize it, it's not a product, you might as well. So, so that's why this approach was abandoned. But these enclosures were built for that purpose. It was a massive research project for decades, um, very expensive, ultimately did not lead to product. But a lot of um, a lot of good science was done along the way. It wasn't a waste of time, money, because we learned a lot about reductive biology and actual, you know, how much there was a lot of modeling done and actually field trials done in you know what levels of sterility do you actually express in females to see an effect. So they did massive trials in pens, surgically sterilizing females and looking at what proportions are needed to actually to patient. Um, collapse in antibody rabbits as well. So it's pretty, a lot of pretty cool work was done. Anyway, the, the thing that the, pre, the, the excellent thing that we made are these pens, and they're currently being used for mouse work for non GM purposes. So the team in my organization is looking at um, uh, novel rodenticides as part of this mouse plague, um, and they've run trials in there, um, yeah. providing a natural environment where you can account for bait preference. Like if a mouse in a cage takes bait, it doesn't mean mouse in the field will take that bait. It's completely different, different things. So, and they were at, they ran a few trials in those pens, uh, and they were able to uh, retrieve every single mouse. So they had to still, yeah. So they, and they had they had to clean up afterwards, and then um, they, they, they are still mouse proof. So those those barriers, they're kind of metal shields, and they go down more than a meter into the ground. I think. Um, they might need repairs because they are 20 years old. It's pretty good facility and organization. So don't we don't own the land, but we own the tenants. We have, we have pens that are not nearly as good, so we had some containment issues. I think maybe the snakes found out where they were. Um, and, but one of the things that might ponder a weird thing, you can kind of fake a gene drive by sex-specific culling. 
of yep. juveniles, and then you could look at changes in behavior and does it actually work? So, oh, yes, where, okay. You yes. Know, does it knock down the population the way you predict? Yep. And there's compensatory reproduction that a lot of animals show. So, it might be worth using with regular mice since you can hold them well. Yeah, 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 true. So, and yep. we even have some, there's even some modeling results that say to try and inform those trials and be happy to share. That'd be, that'd be great. Yeah. What we also were thinking is to, um, if, if we get this proposal funded, which we haven't got, we're trying very hard, but this isn't going forward yet. Everyone thinks it's a good idea, but the cash is yet to be forthcoming. Um, is we want to get the mice off the island, the wild not mice, and establish a captive ecology with those, but we could then very well run the trial with those and selectively cull offspring by sex. And just regular mice, so you yeah. don't have any biosafety. That was hard thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so thanks. That's good. There's yeah. some, some pretty advanced methods, even for tracking movements and stuff. Yeah, there's a group in Germany that's put some stuff together that way. It's made it a lot easier to get a handle on what the mice are actually doing in there, too. So, so yeah, it's pretty cool. I just I had a question. If, you know, Paul's struggles with the homing and the mice. Are there reasons to be optimistic that it, that, that might be the anomaly in mammals, or are there reasons to think that there will be the same kinds of challenges in rabbits and other mammals? Good question. Um, I guess we'll have to find out. Try it. I think there's, uh, uh, I haven't read the paper, I think there's recent evidence that there's quite a better rats. Um, I don't know. I don't know. So rats would obviously be the next species mm -hmm. trying. Optimize they're the next easiest, I guess, to work with, and then rabbits. So, if we actually get this, um, you know, gene editing established, and I know it's a long shot and we're working it up from scratch, but if we get the, the, the new team working on genetically editing the rabbits, um, yeah, we'll try. We'll try multiple approaches. It'll be a lot slower, right? so <laughs> making. Age trials in point and a half kilo animal. You're naturally limited in the numbers that you can do. But yeah. yeah we, we always, no, working on a big and slow non model species, we always consider that people work with you know, alternative things that would lead to publications. So it's a long shot, but. Yeah, it, it has to be tackled somewhere. Any other questions from the room? Or uh, if you're on Zoom, we can take a chat question from you if you have anything you'd like to ask. Or you could unmute, actually. I think we could do that, too. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Appreciate you uh, covering. I mean, one of the nice things about this presentation is that you really covered the full range of you know, perspectives and disciplines that are happening under CSIR's leadership. Um, and the connections to Jupiter are really clear. So thanks for sharing all that. Thanks. Yeah, it was a selection of things. There's a lot more going on than that's the
And thank you to all of you for coming out uh, this point in the semester when it's, a lot of us are challenged with grading papers or finishing papers or taking exams and whatnot. So thanks for being here. It's nice to see you all. Thank you.